Hello, everybody. I'm Carly Knight. And I'm Sabrina Bonet. And this is Procrastination Planet. Where we should be writing, but... Early on in our podcast, we did an episode about the worst writing advice that we have ever heard and or received over the years. Because we like to talk a lot of shit. But since I have a lot of obligations off my plate, I'm checking off a lot of things on my to-do list. My semester is over. I have a chance to rest and relax and do a bunch of other cool shit I want to do. I am feeling a little more positive. And as a result, I would like to do an episode about the good writing advice that we have heard and or received over the years. Very cool. So there. Do you want to start or do you want to put me on the spot? Uh, let's go ahead and put you on the spot. As you do. (laughs) (laughs) So the first bit of good writing advice that I've heard was from Anne Lamott, famously of Bird by Bird. And she had a whole chapter called Shitty First Draft. Ah. Oh, I love her. And as Ernest Hemingway once said, the first draft of anything is shit. Yes. And so she's kind of riffing off of that. And it is thanks to Anne Lamott that I am less afraid of writing a shitty draft. I mean, once in a while, it still holds me back from writing things. But then I remember, oh, yeah, it's a shitty first draft. I'm allowed to fuck it up. Because your first draft is when you just throw everything down on the paper. Sometimes you throw stuff at the paper, see what sticks. But remember, part of writing is rewriting. You can always go through and be like, okay, I don't need this. I need more of that. I'm going to rewrite this part altogether. You kind of get everything out and you see what the real story is. You don't know what the real story is until you've written it all out anyway. I mean, if you're a hardcore outliner, you might know the story by the end of your outline because the outline is so detailed. But that's kind of that's kind of an equivalent of getting a story down, at least as far as its skeleton. But ultimately, you gotta write your first draft. And your first draft is probably gonna suck. It, it's a fact. Just accept it, lean into it, and write like a motherfucker. But thanks to Anne Lamott, I am less afraid of writing a shitty first draft. And I'm a lot more willing to mess up. And, and yeah, it's forced me to write. Nice. Yeah. I know I've read one of her novels. I just can't off the top of my head remember which one it was. Yeah, but I, I definitely recommend Bird by Bird. I think we should put that on our social media. Bird by Bird? Okay. Yeah, Bird by Bird is a really inspirational writing book if you have to get books on writing. I highly recommend that one. I also recommend Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg. She's really good at just getting you into a writing habit. So I would pick that up. And you know what? That kind of... I have a second one to go on is basically build a writing habit. And speaking of Natalie Goldberg, she kind of triggered that little bit for me. Gotcha. Her thing was to um, just write a little bit each day in your journal, write a couple of pages. Even if everything in your journal is absolute garbage, you're just getting it out. And ultimately, all of your writing is composting. It's kind of compost. And you're taking out the garbage and you're making room for the good stuff. You kind of let your first draft, let that shitty first draft sit there. I think these, I think my, my actual two items build onto each other. You write your shitty first draft, you let it compost, and you always build a writing habit. Even if what you're writing is absolute shit, cow manure helps to fertilize crops, okay? I'm... Composting, I love it. Yeah, it's composting. And, you know, composting breeds worms, but you know what? Vermiposting is a real thing. Because worms eat garbage and they shit out good soil. So nice. There we go. So don't be afraid of the worms. Okay, I kind of felt like my analogy fell flat, but whatever. Fuck it. 
So build a writing habit, write absolute trash, because writing is rewriting. So there we go. Nice. On to you, Sabrina. I'm going to share a, a bit of advice that I see retweeted and, and on Instagram everywhere. Elmore Leonard, when he said, if it sounds like writing, rewrite it. Oh, my God. That is on my list, Oh, too. is it? Yeah. Oh, awesome. We, we are... We might be getting along a little too much for this episode. I know. Oh, my God. I have to totally disagree with you <laughs> just to challenge your opinion. So with um, with Elmore, Elmore Leonard's work, um, the way he talked about dialogue mm-hmm. and just getting to the story of it, I, I, I love that advice. Because me, when I'm being nosy, I, I just I want the story. Mm-hmm. And I want the story by what, what did they talk about? What did they feel? Um, everything else is sort of like info dump for me. So just getting into that dialogue is is what I like. And the part where he says, if it sounds like writing, rewrite it. That gets to me. Because have you ever typed something and you're three to five pages into it and you realize you don't even know what the heck you just wrote? So you go back and you just backspace and delete all of it? Sometimes I leave it and just let it... I let it lay and then I see if it's usable for later. Let it simmer. Okay. Yeah. Let it compost. Because sometimes you go back to it and you're like... You look at it with fresh eyes and you read it and you're thinking, oh yeah, I typed absolute garbage. Okay, don't hit backspace. Save it. Save it. You can cut it and put it into a separate document. I have a separate document that I call story orphans. I love that. And that way, if there's something I need to cut out of a story because it's not serving that story, I will put it in a whole different document just in case A, I may need it later or B, I can cannibalize those elements for a whole different story. Story orphans. Keep them. Yeah, I would keep the story orphans. But um, that's another thing, too, is um, have some distance from your writing. Like when you write a draft, let it sit for a couple weeks while ideally you're working on something else because you want to build your writing habit. And then when you go back to it, you can have a different perspective. Because if you're really super close to your writing, you can't be objective. Because sometimes you're like, oh, I spent so much time on this paragraph, I have to fucking keep it even though it's not working for the story. Yeah. Or you're like, oh, wait, what I thought was total rubbish, it's actually not too bad. Maybe I just got to move this sentence here and this sentence here, but hey. Yeah. It's not so bad after all. It helps to um, give you some objectivity. Gotcha. Um, Can I piggyback on your if it looks like writing? Absolutely. Okay, so my thing too is I'll write something sometimes and then I will read over it. And then it's like, it's a beautiful sentence, but it's overwrought. It's purple. It's something that I clearly wrote because I'm trying to impress people with my literary prowess. Mm. So if it looks like writing, if you, um, basically if the stitches are showing, then you want to fix it. Because you, you just want it to be natural. I mean, not so natural that you just drunkenly slam typed it or something like that you don't want not that natural but you don't want it to be stilted and overdone and pretentious unless you're doing academic writing in which case the more bloviated and pretentious you make it the better (laughs) but if you're trying to write stuff that people are actually going to fucking read and enjoy don't make it look like writing yeah you have to know when to pull back and be like okay am i writing this because this is true to the voice of my piece Or am I writing it because I want people to see, look how wonderful I am. Look how literary I am. Watch me write. If you're writing it for that reason, you could probably take um, 
like a crowbar and pry your head out of your rectum, hit the shower and wash the shit out of your hair, and then fix that shit. The shit that, the figurative shit that you put on your paper. Fix that. I think we had a meeting of the minds with our, if it looks like right, Elmore fix it. Leonard. Yeah, yes. Elmore Leonard. Rest in peace, Elmore Leonard. Yes. Who do you have on your list? Oh, I have, um, I don't have everything as a who. I do have just some, I oh, do have some general what's as advice. well. Yes. But I'm going to go with the old chestnut show, don't tell. Okay. And it, it kind of sounds like just retread advice. Because sometimes people will just slam out a show don't tell kind of thing on there. Info dumps, yes. It's not an info dump. Show don't tell. Show don't tell means that you're not just saying, he was mad. Ah. You need to paint a picture. Okay. And one of my friends always says, um, paint a picture. Hi, Wayne. (laughs) Shout out to my friend Wayne. Because I have have to show that I have friends and that I don't just live in my basement as a loner. With just my dogs. (gasps) Anyway, so um, so one of my friends always says, um, paint a picture. And instead of saying, he was mad, that doesn't really tell me anything. How does he look when he's mad? His, oh, God, what was the, oh, shit. There was a, there was a writing book that I read. Um, ooh, oh, I forget what it's called. But the analogy she made to show someone was angry. Uh-huh. And she said his face looked like a boiled ham. And it's wow. like, you could, you could see the redness, how cooked with rage he was. It was a super vivid image for me. And it's a lot better than, he was mad. His face looked like a bold hand. I like that. You wrote her that? Fa- no, I didn't write it. I read it. You read it. Yeah. Okay. Or in the case of me, her face turned rage, hate, purple. <laughs> her face turned rage, hate, purple, and a blood vessel burst in her eyeball. And she slashed... That motherfucker's tires because he took her parking spot. Okay, (laughs) Show, don't tell. Yeah, definitely show, don't tell. Use your five senses. One thing that I found really helpful, there was this group of writers that I would meet with. And we would get together and we would kind of work on a a short passage. Okay. And we had an exercise where we would would try to render the scene just using the five senses. Like, what does your point of view character see? I mean, that's an easy one usually of what you see. What is your main character smell? What would your main character feel? Like, do you feel the sun on your skin? Do you feel the rain pelting like cold needles into your arms because you forgot your jacket? Oh, wow. That kind of thing. Would there be anything that you taste? Would there be anything that your main character hears? That sort of thing. Get as many of those things down as you can in the scene, whether or not they're relative. Whether or not they're relevant. God, I can't fucking speak today. Anyway, you go through. This is your shitty first draft. Then you go through and you rewrite and you kind of call the details that aren't important. But you bring out the most vivid ones. Like maybe there's a bitter taste in the back of your throat because of this fear. Or you have this fear and it tastes like cold metal in the back of your throat. Or something like that. Get like the vivid details. You don't have to get every single goddamn detail ever because there's a such thing as a delete key. And sometimes you do have to tell in order to speed the process because if you literally showed everything, it would really slow the action down. But if you do nothing but tell, then you're just having a summary. You want to kind of immerse the reader into your scene. And so that was my lecture on show, don't tell. Oh my God, I 
a related exercise that we did was if you're having trouble with a particular scene, okay. I have to go back and do that with a couple of scenes I'm hung up on too. But you can break down the scene into different categories. Like write the scene in nothing but dialogue. Okay. Do that. Write out that scene in nothing but action. Write out the scene in nothing but sensory detail. Your five senses. Gotcha. And then try writing the scene in um, nothing but internal thought. And then you could do one scene with all exposition just to relate the who, what, when, where, why. Wow. But when you do that, when you break down all those little elements, something is going to trigger what's at the heart of your scene. Very cool. Yeah. I love that exercise. Yeah. And it, it gives you kind of a richness and detail to your writing too once you employ those elements. Nice. And then it, it also kind of helps you figure out what's more important as far as internal dialogue, what's more important as far as spoken dialogue, et cetera. Amen. Your awesome, turn. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so the next person that I have on my list, obviously, it's Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote on writing and I just put scare them. But that wasn't the quote. <laughs> um, his quote was something like, try to put fear in them. If you can't, then try to gross them out. And then he <laughs> ended it with, I'm not proud. And I wow. just took that to mean write things that people will gravitate towards and have fun reading. I don't know where you put Stephen King on the spectrum, but he has been honest in that there are literary people that just don't look at him. Mm-hmm. That get awards and they just don't consider him yeah well he, he's more in the commercial fiction he's more in the commercial fiction but even among commercial fiction there are people who are just like eh. yeah so his thing is he's there to sort of let people enjoy themselves and i'm looking forward to it too coming out in october <laughs> um so i don't um i where am i getting with this rant i think it's just um the the, the way he says just to have fun with it i think is good writing advice Mm-hmm. The real writing advice that I want to get to, and I think I'm piggybacking onto another topic. That's okay. Um, the thing that happens with me, and I don't know if this is, I'll just tell and then you could cut it out if it's if it's not, if we're going off track here. Um, I will get these alerts on Twitter that'll say, oh, do you feel like writing an essay on this topic and having it published? And I see those and I'm like, hmm. oh, great. I want to write an essay on that. But you first have to do a pitch and then... Your pitch is due like in a week. And then once that's done, you have to come up with the essay within two weeks from there. Oh my God. That would frighten the shit out of me. (laughs) I slack on the pitches. In fact, in the span of one, two, three, four, what what year are we at? In the past four years, I have only successfully done it three times. And it's not that I don't write it. It's that I miss fucking deadlines. And it's not even the deadline of the actual story. It's the deadline of the pitch. Oh, you okay. I got to beat your ass. I got to be your drill sergeant. Oh, my gosh. I'm a very good armchair quarterback. (laughs) (laughs) And so I have a friend who she writes and does this is what she does for like a living. She would she was just in the independent. Um, I don't know how the fuck she does it. So here's the thing. Um, You see the pitch come through Mm -hmm. and it'll say, oh, can you find someone who likes to eat candy apples and nothing but candy apples? And can you relate that to yoga? (laughs) And you have people who are like, fucking I can do it. And they'll send in that pitch. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Like I can come up with a goofy, funny story on on my topic, but I can't take something that's existing and morph it into the topic that you're looking for just to get published. What is that called? 
I'm not sure. Because a lot of people... I don't know if it's your thing that you just don't take to writing prompts or something. And so some people are like, oh, I had the article written. It was um, what they needed was just a bit different from something I had already written. So I just skewed it, rewrote it, and that's what I turned in. And I'm like, holy shit. And it's the speed of that, of the pitch, that I'm... I would love to get back. I think at. just write a bunch of shit and see what you can skew to just fit a throw particular it narrative. Yeah. Tweet, tweet it out. See yeah. what happens. I am happy to report that. Um, okay, since I'm putting it out there, I'm afraid I'm going to jinx it. <laughs> but I submitted two short stories to some various literary magazines. Yay! So I'm. I could use some good vibes because I would like to have something published good vibes yeah said to carly that's right at procrastinationplanet.com yay so i did do that and i am happy to learn that doing a pitch for a short story to a literary magazine isn't half as involved as doing a query letter for an agent nice. <laughs> so you're just like hey please consider x story at five thousand words to blank magazine oh um, this is a simultaneous submission. I will let you know promptly if it gets accepted elsewhere. You know, that kind of thing. Very nice. Because I don't have any credentials other than my self-published novel to pop on there. They don't care about self-published. So if I do get accepted to something, I can have my little platform. Very cool. I thought I'd just toot my own horn there. Oh, and speaking of Stephen King. Yes. Read a lot, write a lot. Read a lot, write a lot. Yeah. Oh, he was on your list for that one, too. He was on my list for this one, yeah. And with the short stories, I'm trying to get back into the read-a-lot habit. Nice. What's funny is when I was younger, I didn't have a lot of short stories in me. I had just the big hork and novels in me. I don't know if that was just a fancy way of procrastinating. I don't know. But now that now that I'm grown, I now have short stories in me. I think maybe it's just my impatience to get published, so it's easier to revise and work out a short story but that was just me being a narcissist no not at all we love <laughs> it publication short stories do you also think it's the time that people are gravitating towards these fuller short stories that they can consume in the amount of time they're given that might be that might be a thing too there's one magazine called smoke long quarterly oh. and they do flash fiction because their whole thing is stories you can read in the time it takes to smoke a cigarette Ah. So I submitted a bit of flash fiction there. Very cool. So my thing is I need to do more writing prompts. Now that I have the semester over, I can get back to the read a lot, write a lot. I mean, I've been reading a lot and writing a lot, but that's been on an academic level. Gotcha. So now I'm trying to get back into the my writing for me, me, me and pleasure reading. Nice. So I am hoping to be able to take Stephen King's advice as he has intended. So read I think a lot, I d- write a lot. Yeah, so I think if I do like a writer prompt every day, then I can maybe try and get a flash fiction story every day. Uh-huh. How long is a fl- uh, flash fiction story? I think flash fiction, it's under 500 words. Oh, wow. Last I checked. Under Sometimes they say words. under 1,000, but I think that's a bit long. Gotcha. So I, the cutoff point safely is 500. In my writer's group, the guy who um, organizes it, he does a story every day. That's kind of his wow. thing. So I would like to achieve that level of output. Nice. You can do that in 10 minutes. So I think if you just do a prompt, give yourself 10 minutes, write like a motherfucker, you might have something you can tinker with. You might have something that's just total compost. 
But either way, you're just building that writing habit. Yeah. And I keep circling back to that. But yeah, boom. Nice. I'm excited. Yeah. And I think I was actually the one who started this. So who is, what is your next bit of great advice or good advice? My just okay advice. (laughs) Something that I realized, you know, I think it was from Natalie Goldberg too, from writing down the bones. And this is something I do to this day is always have a hard copy to edit. Oh, that is a good one because I don't get in the habit of printing. Yeah, I have done the thing where I've tried to edit on the screen and I'll do that for a paper that's I have to do in class. I'm like, okay, I just got this, I got that, and uh, I just have to have it done. But with my term paper this semester, I had to do the print out a hard copy thing because I was just getting overwhelmed and the topics were more challenging this time around uh. than they than they were for previous classes. And with the scrolling up and down and up and down to try and find, wait, did I have this passage over here too? Am I repeating something? And the whole scrolling up and down, up and down, just, ugh, it gets me anxious. So if I print out a hard copy, I can see these things just right in front of me. And I'd rather turn a page than scroll. Yeah. And the thing that Natalie Goldberg had suggested was what she does is she has her hard copy, she'll go through it and she'll just mark places where she says I need to add more stuff and then go into her notebook and then start free writing. And I do the same thing too. I will do like A, B, C. And that way I can keep track of things where I add more stuff. Like I'll look at a paragraph and be like, oh, I need to describe this room a little bit more. So part A, and then I have A in my notebook, and then I go onto a free ride of what this room is going to look like, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe a little later down the page, I'm like, oh, I don't have much of a reaction from this character because of this particular thing that happened. Letter B, reaction. And then I'll go into my notebook. I have to do a different color. I I just have to have alternating colors so I can keep everything separate. I'm a very visual learner. So then I will go through and I'll kind of free write of what the reaction would would logically be and so on and so forth. So having a hard copy to edit really helps. Also because when you're looking at the screen all the damn time, it's kind of low key blinking all the damn time. Yeah. And you're also really super close to that kind of writing in the heat of the moment. So it's hard to be objective. So when it's in a hard copy format, then it's a little easier to be objective because you're looking at it in a slightly different point of view. And then you can go through and be like, oh, okay, this passage is repetitive. Oh, I repeated words over here. Yeah. Um, I was just going to ask, I wonder if this is keeps you healthy mm-hmm. because something I've been looking for, we've known each other for a decade. Mm-hmm. You have not, you you have yet to need reading glasses or glasses at all. Do you think it's this habit of printing that's helping you? You're the only friend I have who has not succumbed to <laughs> the reading. Or do you just not need reading glasses all the time, but at some point? Or you haven't gotten there yet? I haven't gotten there yet. I wonder if it has something to do with the screen and you printing out and looking and editing on, on paper. I hate reading on screens, to be honest. Because you know it's bad for you and you stop. <laughs> no, it just kind of hurts my eyes. I'm just like, oh, I think I'm going to... Look at paper. I'd rather look at paper. Yeah. I don't know if it's necessarily a thing that's healthier. I'm wondering if my vision is a blessing of my genetics. Yes. So far, so good. No reading glasses, no glasses. That's beautiful. I mean, I could live with reading glasses, mm. but I just know I will probably never have contact lenses. I don't like the idea of sticking something in my eyeball. That just completely squicks me out. Um, I didn't mind 
wearing them. I love wearing them. The only thing is, um, I actually have allergic reaction to the material. Mm. And so after maybe about three hours, um, it'll bubble up. So I can't. But yeah, that was gross. And we moved on from that. Um, Ice quick. Trigger warning. Ice quick. Yeah. The only (laughs) other advice that I have that I listed out here is Kurt Vonnegut when he says you have to be kind. And always wear sunscreen. And always wear sunscreen. (laughs) I'm going to out myself. I accidentally said Charles Bukowski. (laughs) <laughs> I don't I don't know what I was reading, but yeah, that was actually a Kurt Vonnegut quote. So you have to be funny and you have to you have to always be kind. Coincidentally, I have a Kurt Vonnegut bit of advice. Thank you. Please share it with us. I will I will share it with you so you don't feel like an asshole. I know because I only I a partial down... <laughs> asshole, not a complete asshole. I fell down a Kurt Vonnegut uh, rabbit hole when I was researching for this topic, mm-hmm. and I read through everything, and then I I saw that you have to be kind, and it was the only note I took. <laughs> so school us on Kurt Wanagit. This is something that I kind of pass on to all of my writer friends too when I'm critiquing is your character should want something on every page, even if it's just a glass of water. Nice. Or they should Is it every every page or every scene? I think at least every scene. Every scene. Even even if it's just a glass of water because you need tension. Yeah. And I I know I I rag on your friend who talks about, you need tension, but you know, in fiction writing, you do need that tension. You have to kind of dangle something your character wants in front of them okay. and then you don't give it to them. Yes. Or you give it to them and then things go horribly wrong because they have that thing they thought they wanted. Oh. You have to fuck things up for your characters. You gotta fuck things up. Yeah. Conflict makes things interesting for fiction. Conflict, I hate it in my real life because I have enough fuck shit going on. I don't need to manufacture any of that. But in fiction, it keeps the reader worried. It keeps the reader turning pages. If your character has a victory every goddamn time, then your reader is not going to care enough to keep turning pages. Yeah. Because then it'll be like, oh yeah, of course the character's going to get everything they want. Duh. And same thing too is if you have your character in chronic fucking misery all the time. You do have to give them a victory every so often. Yeah. Because then your reader's like, oh, maybe she'll triumph. But then you fuck enough stuff up and you're like, oh my God, I hope she makes it through. Oh no, what if she doesn't? So you kind of have to, you have to balance it. Because you don't want everything too easy for your character, but you don't want this constant fucking grind that's never ending. I can't quite take a breakneck pace when I'm reading something because I, I get too much anxiety. And it's like, I need to have some kind of break in the tension just so I can breathe. Yeah. But I don't want enough of a break in the tension that I can comfortably close the book and be like, meh, I'm very picky. <laughs> I'm particular. So that was my Kurt Vonnegut bit. Thank you. What else do you have? Because I actually cheated and had you add on to my Kurt Vonnegut have to be kind. <laughs> I have so much shit left to go. Go for it. Um, one of my things was, I forgot, I forgot where I heard this, but they're talking about revenge fic. Because okay. sometimes, you know, you have something shitty happen to you and you're like, I'm going to write this story about the person who did me wrong and they're going to be sorry. With anything, you have to, if something shitty happens, you have to give yourself enough distance from that before you write an actual story. I mean, by all means, journal about the fuck shit thing that happened. 
Like your boss is getting in your face about something you thought was inconsequential or your mom is nagging you yet again about why aren't you married even though Charles Manson got married? What the fuck are you doing? You're still single. Like that meme that I... I'd seen on Facebook. The Thanksgiving one? Yeah. It's like, oh, you got to explain to your parents while you're still single, even though Charles Manson got married. Oh my that gosh. One. And some people have, a, it's like they have parents who bug them about settling down and having kids. And they're like, oh my God, not this conversation again. Or, you know, you, you get some shit that happens or you hate somebody and you decide that you're going to write a revenge fic about them. And the thing is, you have to have some distance because if you try and write an actual story while the thing is still going on, you're not going to know how your story ends. So it's kind of hard to find closure for your fictional story. Again, journal it, do whatever you have to do. But don't try and write an actual fucking story about it yet. Gotcha. Because otherwise, it's going to be very transparent that you have a revenge fic. The bad guy who wronged you is one-dimensional, mustache-twirling villain. And the perfect pristine hero who got wronged is... Wow, if this person were any more perfect, the Pope would have them canonized. And then it's just, ugh, it's just stupid. It's like, don't, don't, don't write that shit. Oh my God. What was it? Um, was it John Grisham? No, it wasn't John Grisham. It was um, Michael Crichton, the Jurassic Park dude. Yes. Okay, so there was this book critic. Was it a book critic? I think it was a book critic. And he was, he had given Michael Crichton a shitty review on something. And then Crichton had written what was obviously a revenge kind of thing via the villain. The villain was very loosely based on this critic. Oh, god! Super loosely based on this critic. And he made this critic into a pedophile with a baby dick. Oh, my and gosh. And it's like, we see you. Come on. That is so transparent. It's like, don't fucking do that. <sighs> and that was that's the kind of thing, too, is I will confess that I based Aunt June off a couple of people oh. that were condescending and twatty to me. Gotcha. And... Like, my, in my first draft, she was kind of this mustache-twirling, menopause mustache-twirling <laughs> villain. But I had to go back, and I had to make her more dimensional. And it's like, well, I'm not writing these two people who are shitty to me. I'm writing a whole character in a work of fiction, so I have to give her dimension. And so I made sure to make her funny. It's like, she's a total asshole, but she also says funny shit. Like, in the opening chapter, she's looking at Mrs. Covington in her skin-tight dress, and she's like bless her heart, you could see her spleen. You know, so I, I had to make sure she was funny. You had to have something that humanizes your villains. Yeah. And you have to have something that makes your heroes vulnerable. And I think, too, when you make your villains multidimensional, it makes them more of a threat. Like if you're going to write a revenge fic about the chick who stole your boyfriend or something like that. I mean, it could be super easy to dismiss her as some basic bitch or whatever. And she's just a total airhead and there's nothing redeeming about her and blah, blah, blah. But remember, um, what's it? Sleepless in Seattle? Yes. Yeah. And remember when Tom Hanks' son was calling up Meg Ryan being like, oh my God, he's going out with a total hoe. And she goes and sees. That's a creepy stalker movie when you think about it. But anyway, she kind of watches him with the new girlfriend and whatever. And then she talks to her friend. She's like, she's not a hoe. She's someone we would be friends with. And it's like, doesn't that make her more of a threat? I never saw Sleepless in Seattle. Oh my god! Okay, okay, you need to you need to watch that, and then we need to talk about how problematic it is. Okay. But <laughs> but the thing is, if the romantic rival is something, someone you can't just dismiss as dumb and basic or whatever. Gotcha. It makes that rival more of a threat to the character, 
And then that increases the tension. Yeah. Because if that person is, if the villain is more real too, like the, um, like the asshole who stole credit for your big project at work, if you just make him this one dimensional fuckwit. Yeah. It's easy to dismiss him, but if he, you also give him glimpses of humanity, like, hey, he saw you were having a sad and he gave you, he got you your favorite kind of donut. You're like, he's a real person. That actually makes him more of a threat. And, oh, people can see the charming side of him. So no one's going to believe you when you say that he stole the credit because he actually does nice things too. And he does nice things for you as well, which makes you kind of feel like an asshole for hating him. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, with your first draft, you know, by all means, do your catharsis. And also that kind of, um, that kind of relates to another thing is don't use real people as characters. Yeah. Because then you can, um, you can risk getting sued or at least losing friendships or whatever. Because it's like your friend might be like, oh, that's okay. You can totally use me in a story. But then they might be like, oh, what did you talk about X, Y, and Z issue in here? Or I don't do this. Because you might change something for the sake of the story. Well, I don't do this. You have I to change. I did get called out on that. Yeah, you can't. You can't do that. I may have accidentally used a friend's divorce, and she read through it mm. in something, and she noted it, and I was like, "No, I just it was a funny line, but it was like it hit too close to home because she actually did say it about their marriage, and I took the line to use it in a story. Oh no! And she was like, "Don't, don't, don't." And I was like, okay, that sucks. That was a yeah. really good line. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but yeah, you have to change enough stuff. I mean, you can use real people as a jumping off point. I've done that. But I've definitely made sure to change so much stuff that people don't recognize themselves. Because sometimes you just have like this little kernel of who someone is. And you use that and you, then you build a whole new Person. shell around them. How fun. Yeah. Because you still have to have characters and real people. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of dimensionalizing characters. Dimensionalizing characters. Yeah. There's also that risk if you use real people too, like if you use your friends. There's also this risk of like doing the Mary Sue thing for them. Making them too perfect because you don't want them to get pissed at you for giving them flaws or whatever. I always make them assholes. And it's like you don't want to give them their real flaws because, you know, you don't want to expose your friends. But at the same time, you don't want to make up flaws because they're like, no, I don't do that. Okay. I already tread that ground. But to dimensionalize people to Donald Moss, he's like this agent extraordinaire. He wrote this one book. Um, he has writing the breakout novel. That's a classic. He also has the fire in fiction. And one of the things that stuck with me is if you have a character that's heroic, like if you have a genre that requires heroic characters, you also want to look at what makes those heroic characters human and relatable. Yes. Because you don't want this perfect, you don't want to Mary Sue, Gary Stew your story. Yes. Even Superman has his kryptonite. And he's boring. <laughs> so you want to point out what makes your, your extraordinary human characters relatable. And on the other hand, if you have characters that are just kind of everyday, ordinary people, you want to point out what makes them extraordinary too. What makes them special? Why are you telling their story? You want something that makes them stand out. What makes them stand out? What makes them important? Uh We are on the third film of John Wick. I am addicted to it. And there is basically no story 
it's all action. Like, yeah, he has to tell the bad guys, no, we can't do this. But you sit there for two and a half hours and you watch him slaughter person after person. Mm-hmm. What is the story that we're all drawn to that we're following? Is it really his penance for everything that started out? Or are we watching it because he is on a journey? Don't tell me you haven't seen John Wick. No. I can't do cause this. Because yeah. the dog dies and that's what starts his journey. And I can't have a dead dog in my stories. That is true. That is how it started. He, yeah, I can't I can't do dead dog stuff. No. He slaughtered no. them all because of that. I would too. He killed everybody. I'm sorry if my dog so much as gets a thorn in his paw because you're an asshole. I will slaughter you. The first film, it's like they did that not knowing what was going to happen and he killed everyone. <laughs> and then in the second one, they tried to get retribution for what he did and he killed them too. <laughs> and then this third one is just more the same. I can't and I watch it, and I'm like, what is the story? And the story is love. And he has a new dog, too. Aww. It's a beautiful pit And I'm going to be I'm gonna be super worried about that dog. See, I, every time I see a dog in a movie, I'm always going to worry about that dog. Okay, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. Fuck people. No one who's, who's, who's excited about John Wick is also listening to our literary tales. <laughs> they shot the dog in the movie, but she had a bulletproof vest on the dog. But we didn't know that till after the shot was fired. <laughs> Did he wear like a fake? <laughs> Do you know how you put the the, the a fake fur? You know how you put a puppy in like in the, not a leash around the neck, but the whole body the suit. The harness. The harness was bulletproof. It was a velcro. It, not a velcro. What's the word when the uh, when police officers wear that? So there, it was basically a harness. Uh, it was a harness. Kevlar. But it, was a, it was a Kevlar harness, and the with the, a little velcro fastener. <laughs> and the bullet she like took the bullet off and she was like oh my gosh you shot at the dog she took her t- gun and she popped that guy's knee out <laughs> oh my i God. loved fuck it fuck people <laughs> i don't i'm not gonna cut any of this out and that was the thing she's like you can cut this out i'm like no i'm not cutting it fuck out. it fuck leave you. it in there and <laughs> fuck the, it leave it in she walked i thought up. she was gonna say something wild inappropriate or whatever but the thing is is that do you, you know you're into the godfather and goodfellas mm-hmm. you don't go up to the godfather and shoot his kneecap out because he got mad and shot your dog but she no. did it and so she's basically she signed a death sentence to herself <laughs> and she looks at keanu and keanu just looks at her and he's like i understand it's like we love our puppies. <laughs> oh. Yes, we do love our puppies. Again, Let's I see. take us on another rant. <laughs> we live for your rant, Sabrina. Thank you. <laughs> so another thing I have uh-huh. is have a thick skin to take feedback. Yes. Because you can't write in a vacuum. No. I mean, you have to be judicious about who reads your work. Because sometimes you might give your work to people who don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Or you give your work to your friends. And either A, you have asshole friends who be like, what are you doing? Whatever, go fuck yourself. Or you have friends that don't want to hurt your feelings. And they'll just be like, oh, I like it. Or if you're in high school, wow, that's deep. Do you ever have friends who take it, never read it? And they're like, oh, I, I, I'll, I'll get to it. I just have. And then they never do. I don't give my work to my friends. Okay. Except for my friends in my critique group. Actually, okay. I have actual critiquers. Nice. So a critique group is really good. 
you have to be cautious about picking a critique group because sometimes you get one and it's like no one knows what the fuck they're talking about. Gotcha. Like they'll give a bunch of bad advice, but like act like it's good advice. Or they'll use like a whole bunch of jargon, but it's clear there's no substance to what they have to say. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I've been pretty lucky with my writer's groups. Uh-huh. They mostly know their shit. Nice. And it's like if one person doesn't know something, someone else in the group knows something. So I'm able to get a pretty thorough critique. Very cool. I mean, you don't have to blindly take every bit of feedback you get. Because number one, that's impossible because opinions conflict. Yeah. And number two, you don't want a book that's written by a committee. Yeah. You just have to, you know, take everything into consideration. Thank them for their perspective. Thank them for taking the time to look at your piece. Because they didn't have to do that. But I find what helps me is when I get my critiques back, I'll put everything aside. And then the next day I'll go over it. And that way I have time for everything to compost. Because I'm a reactive person by nature. And... I'm someone who gets super butt hurt and everything, but I'm getting better. And sometimes I hear a critique and it's a critical one. And it's kind of easy to get defensive of your work. It's like, I worked so hard on this and oh my God, you're telling me my baby is ugly. I'll be like, no, well, I wrote this because of this, that, and the other. I forgot what critique I had gotten. I felt a little bit reactive because I'm, I'm just a reactive person. And I'm like, oh yeah, I totally need that scene. It's totally gonna work in there. And then I drive home and like, oh, I totally get what they're saying there. Oh, and already I'm thinking of new ways to improve because it's like, okay, you gave me something to think about. And sometimes the really hard critiques are the ones that are going to be the most helpful. I mean, if it's if it's a critique that is obviously done for the well-being of your story and the person's not just being a dickhole. Yeah. Because once in a while you get someone who's just a total asshole. I'm pretty good at scaring those people off. <laughs> I have passive aggressive kung fu. But that's why I give myself time to sleep on it. And then the next day I'll, I'll go through it and be like, okay, I get what they're saying here. And I can be a little more objective about the feedback. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, he has a point here. She's got a point here. This person means well, but I don't think that's going to work. That kind of thing. Oh yeah, I remember um, for my Beatrice book, one of the ladies in the group had pointed out there was kind of the insta love thing going on. And I'm like, well, they just had the dynamic and blah, blah, blah. And then later I'm like, oh my God, she's right. Insta-love. Like when the two, like when the main character and their love interest, they're like both instantly attracted to each other. Gotcha. I mean, it's one thing if it's a one-sided thing, because sometimes you just meet someone and you're like, oh my God, they're so hot. But the chances of it being mutual at the exact same time are pretty fucking rare. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm working on ways to kind of make that dynamic a little more realistic. And also insta-love is a YA cliche. So I'm like, okay, she pointed out where I used a common YA cliche. Okay, and I think sometimes that's why I get reactive too, is like, oh my god, that means I have to go do a big fix. Holy fuck, that's more work I gotta do. And then my lazy side kicks in. I'm like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) But then it's like, no, I have to do the work because otherwise I'm going to get dragged on all the book review sites. Gotcha. Assuming I get published. I'm lotioning up my elbows. Lotion up. That's what Michelle Visage was telling. Um, oh, shoot. Was it Milan or Dita Ritz in season five? Anyway, she's like, lotion up. So have a thick skin to take your feedback because nobody writes in a vacuum. Yes. And another one that I had was, it was from the book Self-Editing for Fiction Writers. 
I don't have the author's names on my person at the moment off the top of my head, but one of the big adages was resist the urge to explain. Because there are times when you look through your book and the narrative smacks of author intrusion because the author is over explaining shit. So sometimes the stuff that is left unsaid, like when we watch Mad Men and whatnot, some things are very open for interpretation. Yeah. And I think that's part of the literary experience as well, is that everyone has a different interpretation of things. So you don't need to spell everything out for your reader. I mean, you want to, you want to write for clarity. You, you don't want things that are so muddy and obtuse. I don't think that's the word I'm looking for, but you don't want things that are so muddled that the reader doesn't know what the fuck is going on. But at the same time, you don't need to spell everything out on the nose. You can let the reader make inferences. You can let the reader wonder what the interpretation is. As long as they have an idea of what the fuck is going on, they can be like, oh, this sounds like they're doing it because of this. Yeah. And I had something a little more poignant to say on that same point, but it went poof. No worries. Damn that allergy season. I know, huh? <laughs> it's kind of made our brains all foggy. <laughs> Maybe I'm having that word fog. I don't know. Coined by Sabrina. Word fog. Yes. <sighs> we need word fog merch. Oh, and by the way, if you're looking to get published, like traditionally, pub eh, traditionally published, I can't fucking speak. Chances are you are going to be looking for an agent who will find you a good publisher because agents have contacts. A good agent will have contacts within the industry. I mean, to some of the big publishers, you can send your manuscripts right there directly. But number one, you're going to be in the slush pile for a year. The agent can get you out of that slush pile and toward the top. And two, the agent will also help you negotiate a better contract. So getting an agent is kind of your best bet. Yeah. Although I would, steer, I would steer clear from agents that say you need to have an entire marketing plan. Because if I had an entire marketing plan, if I were any good at marketing, I would stick to self-publishing and just keep that 15% in my pocket. And then, you know, just hire an intellectual property lawyer or some shit like that to help me negotiate the contract. Would it be the IP lawyer that does that? Oh, I don't. This is probably why I need to find an agent because I don't know this shit, okay? I'm uninformed. But also, when you're looking for an agent, keep in mind that a good ethical agent will not charge you money. Yes. They work strictly on that 15% commission. It's not illegal for them to charge you a fee up front. If they're like, oh, give me this money up front and... Hey, I have money in my pocket. I have no motivation to try and sell your manuscript. Your agent works on commission. Don't pay them money. And yeah, that's it. All right. I'm Carly Knight. And I'm Sabrina Monet. And this has been Procrastination Planet. Thank you. Good night. Good night and goodbye. Procrastination Planet has been written and produced by me, Carly Knight, and my partner in crime, Sabrina Monet. Our logo was designed by C. Trojan of C. Trojan Art. For more of his work, go to ctrojanart.com. Our theme music is Laser Unicorns by Christian Penn, courtesy of Gemendo Licensing. Visit us at procrastinationplanet.com. Follow us on Twitter at ProcrastPlanet. Follow us on Instagram at ProcrastinationPlanetPodcast. If you like us, Tell your friends and spread the word. 
If you hate us, lie and tell your friends how much you like us anyway. We could use the publicity.